Well, good morning. Welcome to Randall Church. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. I'm going to talk today. We're going to begin a new series. We're making our way there. But I want to talk this morning and begin this series by bringing a visualization to you of what a legacy is really all about. So when we talk about a legacy, if I'm using this chain as an illustration, you will see that there are different links in the chain. And as we look at this series and as we look going forward, the different links of the chain could represent the different generations that we see. And as we think about that, we all realize that yes, we come from someone, and yes, uh, our parents came from someone else, and our grandparents came from someone else uh, entirely. My family lineage is from western New York all the way back in uh, the 1700s before we were even uh, a nation. Uh, we lived about six miles from where I grew up. Like that's the heritage that we had there in that community, generation after generation after generation, owning farmland and, and working the land and those type of things. That's the heritage, that's the legacy that was left for me there uh, in Delavan, New York. But we all will leave some form of spiritual legacy as well. And if you want to think of that in terms of general, generational impact for good or for evil. And so as you are here this morning and if you are married, you are thinking through the process of raising kids. Maybe you've got children that are very young like I do or maybe your kids are out of the home. If you are a grandparent or you have grandparents, they are thinking about you and thinking about what is the legacy that is going to be there uh, years to come. If you don't have any children or if you're here and you're single this morning, it would be a mistake for you to think through things as if your link in the chain doesn't exist. You know, we all impact the people that sit around us in their cubicles at work or here at the church and the different ways that you interact with people here. Those are also ways that you and I have a legacy, a heritage that carries on. We use these terms here at Randall Church pretty specifically. We try to define what does that heritage look like, what's the DNA of a heritage, and you've heard us even this morning talk about that upward relationship with Christ, the inward relationship within the body of Christ, and then the outward relationship to the community. That's what a heritage looks like, and we would want to see that carried on generation after generation after generation after generation. As a church that is almost 200 years old in its history, that chain is pretty long. So many of you today, as you look at this chain, and you might be a link in the chain of faith, you realize uh, as you look at this chain that you're not a link whatsoever. Your, your link does not connect to this line, this lineage of faith. The heritage of faith is something that is new. It's, it's foreign to you. You're not a believer. You don't know and you don't love and serve Jesus Christ. You're here because you're interested in what's going on and you were dragged here this morning, but you don't really have a strong connection between the God of the Bible and the God that we read about and the God that interacts with us. That connection to you is not real. It all starts today. You have an opportunity later, the opportunity at any point in the search to be able to understand if I give myself to Jesus Christ and what he has done, that there is that connection is available. And we'll go into more detail there. When you meet him as the father, he will adopt you into his family. Many of you are the strong link in the chain. Many of you come from a, a lineage of faith and you are the strongest link in the chain that you are aware of. 
And generation after generation, you are strong links in that chain as well. As we get into this book of Malachi, as we open up this new book today, you're going to see that Malachi is a very strong link in the chain. That Malachi himself is going to look around at the people around him, and he is going to pour himself into those around him. He sees the weakness around him, and he doesn't shy away. He is not afraid. He, he takes that responsibility. Why? Because he is the strong link in the chain. And as we go into the message today and as we look at this series, I pray that you will see, if you are that strong link, that you will be encouraged of ways that you are supposed to lead and interact with those who might be a weaker link. So there's the strong link. There is also the first link. So this chain is called a sling chain. This chain is used in a special way in that you can hook it up to a tree. If you're following a tree or pulling one out of the forest, this, this chain will lock through here because of this first link in the chain. And when that chain is pulled tight, that chain pulls extremely tight and holds tight all because of that first link and all the weight is on the first link. And some of you are the first link in your chain. You are the first one to come to Christ. The generations before, there was no link whatsoever to Jesus Christ. But now, because of that first link, because of that first link, the lineage begins to grow. Because of that first link, the legacy all ties in. And there's a responsibility you carry in being that first link that everything begins to pull off of that link. If you are here today, I want you to be encouraged by really the responsibility that you carry as the first link in your chain. If you are sitting with someone who you know is the first link in their chain, understand the responsibility that they carry. Understand the responsibility that they have when they go back to their home, to their family, to their extended family of really what it is for them to continue to hold on and hold fast if we've been studying in Hebrews and be that first link in the chain. But then, of course, if there's those three, if we've started there this morning, and you realize, okay, either I'm the strong link, I'm not a link whatsoever, I'm the first link, and then there's category four, of course, is the weak link. Many of you here today, and you have the possibility, nonetheless, of being the weak link in the chain. Maybe your story is similar to mine. Maybe this would resonate with you where you grew up in the church. For me, I had an extended family on both sides of the family. My, my grandparents were believers. My grandparents' grandparents were believers. And, and on both sides of the family, when I would come to church, I lived in a very small town, I would come to church and both sides of the family would be represented there in the church. And there were, seems like, enough cousins to spread out every, all the way down every aisle in the church because they were all there and connected to the gospel. And maybe for you, uh, you have been raised in a Christian home like me. You were raised in a Christian school. Uh, you had your parents, as I did, that were deacons, and my mother sang in the choir. My grandparents sat on the board of a Christian camp. Basically, I had a, a G-rated Christian bubble all around me at all times. And if you grew up in this atmosphere, maybe you realize if that faith chain were to break, it would break because of you. If that chain were to break, if that bubble were to burst, it would be because of you. 
you realize that you are the half-hearted one. You are the weak-minded one. You are the one who really struggles to get your mind around some of these things. And the rest of your family seems to be holding on strong. This passage has something for you here today. So this morning, we're going to move to the book of Malachi. But I want to use this as an illustration this morning. I didn't test this out ahead of time. I'm hoping this doesn't fall. It looks good. I want this to be here as a way to remind us of the links in the chain that we are this morning. Will you open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Malachi? Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. This is a new series that we're going into today. I'm going to give you some background as to where we will head with the rest of the series. God is speaking largely to a group here that is a weak link. These people are weak links in a chain and a lineage of weak links. Things are not going well. Things are going poorly. They are not looking at the future with a bright out outlook. And out when they're looking ahead, the future looks bleak. Malachi lived about 100 years after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. They had been pushed out of their land, but now they had returned. And Malachi brings down the, the curtain of the Old Testament. He is the last in a long line of prophets who are all really talking about the coming and foretelling of the coming Messiah. The word Malachi itself means messenger or my messenger. We know very little about him specifically, but that's okay. After all, God's message is very much more important than the messenger. If you get a UPS package at the door and the guy in the brown shorts and the brown truck drives up and he leaves something at you, he rings the doorbell, he brings you this message, brings you this package and hands it to you, very rarely do you ever find out the guy's name. Very rarely do you find out his family situation. Very rarely do you find out any of that. Why? Because his role, his, his only job is to give you the package, to deliver the message to you and then get back in his vehicle and drive away. And that's exactly what Malachi does here. We don't learn much about his background. When we look at Scripture, we don't know much about what is happening with him. But the message is clear. Malachi's message was directed to the people of Israel who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt because it had been destroyed when they were taken off to Babylon. It had been rebuilt, but things were not going well. If you have read the the passages in Ezra and in Nehemiah, these are the stories of how things were not going well. When Israel first returned back from exile, their hopes and their dreams were high. They had rebuilt the temple. They had started to put things back together. And they were waiting for the great promised Messiah that they had been told was coming. They were waiting for all of this to come to pass. The Messiah would come and he would unify his people and his nation of Israel. It would all be unified once again and he would rule and he would reign. And this is what they were waiting for to bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. When the Israelites returned back to Jerusalem, the Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their predecessors of the generations who had gone before them, resulting in poverty, in injustice, in corruption. In Malachi, we found how corrupt 
this generation really has become. The book is laid out, is designated as a series of disputes. Basically what happens is God begins with saying something, he makes a claim, he makes an accusation, and then the Israelites will either agree or disagree. They generally disagree with the question and they question his statement. And then God will respond and offer insight. He'll offer uh, his word. He'll respond. He'll give the last word to their disagreements. This will happen throughout this book six different times. It's the same process that rolls through. So if you haven't already, will you get your Bibles and turn. If you've got a copy of God's Word this morning, turn to the book of Malachi. If you're using the, the pew hymnals in front, pew Bibles in front of you, you're at page 1,000. That's an easy number to remember, page 1,000. We're working our way through. We're going to be in the New International Version here this morning. We're going to see through Malachi that God confronts his people with their apathy towards his love. In fact, 47 out of the 55 verses are spoken directly by God dealing with this. And this is the highest percentage coming from God directly of any of the other prophets or prophetic books. So now we've got an overview of the book. Let's focus on the introduction. That's where we're going to be today, the introduction of the book. Where the Lord indicts his people for indifference and his love for them. It's been observed that the opposite of love is not generally hatred, it's apathy. I hope that none of you here this morning would say that you hate God. That's probably not the attitude that you had when you walked in here this morning. But some of you may be or have the propensity to be a weak link because you have grown indifferent. You have grown apathetic towards God. So, with your Bibles, if you look, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, we will see if you're doing fill-ins with us this morning, that God's love is declared. God's love is declared. Verse 1, a prophecy the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay, so there's God's people. These are his children. They are the children of Israel. He is their father. These men and women, young and old, he's adopted them into his family just like you and me. And so when you look at this book and you look at this passage and you say, well, where is God going to start? If this is going to be a book about his love, where will he begin? Where will he begin dealing with people like us who are half-hearted? There are people who are not giving generously. He's going to rebuke them in chapter 3. There are people who are not dealing with marriage and divorce appropriately. He's going to deal with that in chapter 2. They're not serving wholeheartedly. He's going to deal with that throughout the book. But where will the Father begin with the correction of his children. He begins with this statement, I have loved you. I have loved you. You realize this is antithetical to every other religious system and teaching in the world. In varying ways, when other religious systems, when they form, when they develop, or when you engage with them, you, you see everything is, comes down to something called works. 
It's about what you do to earn God's love. If any other religion were to start a book like this, to start the passage, this is how it would start. If you obey me, then I will love you. But that's not how the Father begins. The Father begins by saying, I have loved you. God declares his love. Now, how do you think that the people will respond to this? Remember, they have returned from the land. They have come in the time of Nehemiah, and although they are discouraged, they have been able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and now there's some return to prosperity. They've been able to rebuild the temple, and they are worshiping in there on a regular basis. How will the people respond? Secondly, his love is denied. His love is denied. They respond, verse 2, second half, B. They say, but you ask, how have you loved us? Can you believe that these people would have the audacity to speak to God like that? Only hearts of stone would not be able to see the different ways. And they'd been oblivious to the countless evidences of God's love, the way he has poured himself out for them with love and concern for his people. These people were not immediately convinced by his declaration. He says, I have loved you. And they said, okay. It's as if they were yawning in response to what he had just said. To them, because of their spiritual state of rebellion, it sounded nice, but it was not convincing enough. Why? Because they looked around, things had not worked out to their satisfaction. Things had not worked out to their satisfaction. And I believe there are a great many today in the church that would raise the same type of question to say, well, look around. Look at things that are happening today. How can you say that God loves us? Or you may say, how can God love me when he allowed my parents to divorce? Or he allowed me to lose my job? He allowed me to go through the pain of losing this loved one. He allowed me to get into that accident and and it ruined the rest of my life. How could you say that God loves me? So the, the loving father, he takes a beat. He takes a moment. He kneels down before his insubordinate child, looks them in the eye, and says, let me give you some evidence of this. Have you been in this situation, parents, where that child looks back and says, you never do anything for me. You must hate me. You're ruining my life. And as a parent, he just stops for a minute. says, let's talk about this. Let me show you some evidence of my love for you. So thirdly, his love is demonstrated. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say... And Edom are the descendants of Esau. Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord God Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. 
The point that Malachi is making to his audience is that even the existence of the nation of Israel at all is evidence of God's love for them. The clearest evidence of God's love on any nation. In his sovereign plan, God chose Abraham out of all the people on the planet. He chooses Abraham. God gives him his son Isaac at 100 years old. Miraculously gives him Isaac. And then gives Isaac later in that generation two sons with his twin brother Esau. But even before he was born, before he was born, he selects Jacob and says, you will be a nation, a great nation over his elder brother. And God determined that his people, as they descended from Jacob, those 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, would be his chosen people. He loved them in a special way that he did not and does not love other nations. The entire book is a series of disputes where God the Father is telling his children, and some of his children are 60 years and older, but they're still his children. He tells them in various ways, I love you. And they look back at him and say, no, you don't. They're accusing God of sinning and failing. They're accusing God of being unloving. They're accusing God of saying one thing and doing another. They look around and realize we are struggling financially. They had an economic downturn. Their nation was struggling politically to hold itself together. <coughs> it was waning in power and in prestige. They were struggling with morality. There's a lot of rebellion, a lot of anarchy, a lot of sin, a lot of folly. And these people are not atheists. They're just angry. They look at their life. And they're looking at their finances. And they're looking at their nation. And they're saying, if God loved us, wouldn't it look a little bit better? How many of you would have been in the same camp? How many of you would have been there? How many of you are there this morning? The answer is everyone. <laughs> everyone. It doesn't look like God doesn't look like God, it doesn't feel like God loves us. I know that he says that he loves us, but why am I still so broke? Why is this so hard? Why does it seem so dark? You see, religion itself is like a man who walks into an orphanage. He walks into the orphanage and he looks around and he sees all the children there. He says, I'm going to just stay here for a few days. And when I am able to assess things, I'll pick the best, the brightest, the one with the most promise, and I'll take them home with me. That's what religion says. Well, you see, what God says is he comes to that same orphanage, he looks around, and he says, in a moment, I'll take whoever wants to come with me. Because I know that the only people that are left here in the orphanage are the ones who are a mess, the ones who have all kinds of rotten behavior, the ones who don't know who they are. But I will take you, and, and in that I will love you as my own. And in doing so, I trust that love will change you. And you will not be who you are right now, but who I can see in you. God did not pick you because you're so great. God picked you because he's great. And he says, 
I love you. The people of Israel are climbing up into God the Father's lap and slapping him in the face. They're climbing up in his lap, looking into his eyes and saying, I don't care. Do you think that that hurts God's heart? Sin is not just breaking or separating. Sin is not just breaking the law. It's breaking God's heart. So let's bring it home. What's the Father saying to us in this moment, in this time, at this address in New York, 2017? What is he saying to us now? Well, that verse 1 opens with the oracle. Some of your translations will say the oracle or the burden of the man Malachi. The word of the Lord through Israel through Malachi, the burden. This points to the heavy weight that he is carrying as he is sharing this message with his people. He is the strong link, but he is going to have to share some difficult things. Nobody runs around with a, a burden, a heavy weight on their back and, and plays. That person is not playful. They've got a heavy burden. And so Malachi is not playing around here right in the first five verses of the book. He is getting right to it. Why? Because a man who bears the word of God, this prophet, he is carrying a burden because he is pleading with people. He's pleading for the very souls. What does this have to say to you and to me today? It says this. It's our next feeling. When you don't see the hurt you cause... You can't see God's love effect. When you don't see the hurt you cause, you can't see God's love effect. How many of you have been or have now rebellious, wayward children, and they say horrible things to you about who you are and the love that you have, and you have to absorb a tremendous amount of hurt to continue to be in relationship with that child. You have to absorb a tremendous amount of pain and those wounds that you have to take in order just so you continue to hold that relationship together. God the Father absorbs a whole lot of pain and hurt that you and I cause. As a side note, as a parenting tip, if you are a parent, it's our responsibility to behave and act like parents, not siblings. When that child throws and hurls insults at you and at me as a parent, it's our responsibility to respond the way that we see God respond as a heavenly father. Because it's just as easy for us to act like a sibling. What do siblings do when one pushes the other or one fights with the other? What do they do? They fight back. They hit back. And as a parent, there are times when there's insults hurled at us or uh, accusations hurled at us, and it is easy for us just to fight back. But that's not the way that God responds. God absorbs all of this hurt. He maintains a fatherly disposition. He doesn't slap back. He still leads. 
Secondly, when you don't see yourself as bad, you can't see God's love as good. When you see yourself as bad, you cannot see God's love as good. If you say, I'm a pretty good person, then that means that you're also saying that the Father must be a pretty bad God. Because if I'm a good person, I deserve more. I deserve better. I don't deserve this. But if you see yourself as bad, it's easier to see God as good. I deserve eternal hell. Everything else is a gift. Thank you, Daddy, for all the gifts that you give. It's a lot of gifts. When you don't see yourself as bad, you can't see God's love as good. When you don't see your own wickedness, you can't see the greatness of God. When you don't see your own wickedness, you can't see the greatness of God. In verse 4, it says, They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. And you will see it with your own eyes, and you will say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. When we look at that chain of faith, here should be my story. Here should be your story. Here's the reality of the deal. My story should be that raising kids was so difficult that it tore my marriage apart. And we got a divorce. And then after that, because the divorce was so rough, because all those relationships were severed, I didn't know how to deal with the loneliness that it created. And so I began drinking. And because I began drinking, I become an alcoholic. And in that process of becoming an alcoholic, the relationships that are around me start to fail and start to break. And I become an abusive person with my words and with my actions. And then I find myself alone in a hospital dying of liver disease. Why do I say that? Why is that the story? Because look around. That's the storyline. That's the plot. That's what happens in the world that we live in again and again and again. That's the chain. So anytime you look around and say, boy, my life ought to be better. It ought to be easier than this. We need to reorient ourselves and look back and, and realize, where is it that God has brought me? Where is it that he has provided for me? What has he done for me? What life should I have? What life would I have? Here's my question to you. Apart from Jesus, where would you be? Apart from Jesus, who would you be? What legacy would you leave? And would it be better? The answer is no. The answer is no. So this is what God does. This is what God does. Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes. Great is the Lord is what you will say, even beyond the borders of Israel. You see, when God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, he made his story, he made his redemption plan visible. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus Christ was real, visible, tangible. 
There's no argument to that. There are many who disagree and will argue that he was not the son of God. He was not who he says he is. But there is no argument that Jesus existed, that Jesus walked this earth, that Jesus was visible for all to see. When God sent his son Jesus, he made his redemption plan visible. Are you just going through the motions? When I was in the military, our unit got alerted that the general of the base was going to be coming through and checking on each of the units, making his way through. And so we needed to be working when he came. And so we got a window. We had one of our guys was kind of posted to look out, see when, when is he going to be coming through the area. And he was just kind of posted looking out over the thing where we knew where the general was going to be coming with his kind of motorcade thing coming down through so that we would be able to act busy when he came. Literally, this is what we did. I was back in a storage room, and, and what we had was a guy would stand on one side. of This is the side of shelves right here. He would stand on one set of shelves. He would take a box off of the shelf. He would walk around the back, and he would put it on a table. And then I was on the other side of the shelf, and I would walk back to the table, and I would pick up the box, and I would walk over, and I would put it on the shelf. He would take it off the shelf, and then he would walk back to the table, and he would place the box on the table. I would pick the box up from the table and walk around and put it on the shelf. Were we working? Were we busy? We were busy. When the general came in, we saluted. We said, how are you doing today, sir? We're just moving boxes around in the storage. What if he could really see what we were up to? You realize that God knows what you're really up to. Are you just going through the motions? As the band comes up this morning, I pray that as we are opening up this book, this book of Malachi is heavy. There's no question about that. There's a lot that we're going to deal with here that puts a lot of pressure. But when you look at the links in the chain and you realize that you may be that weak link in the chain, You know that God already knows that? And he's already provided a way for you to not live that life, to not walk through the motions and just continually be putting a box on the shelf, carrying it down, walk around, and just living this life of doing the motions. God already knows that. He's already aware of that. And he still speaks in, he still looks in, and he says, I love you. I love you anyway. And here's how I've demonstrated it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if you've grown up in the church like I have, you can almost yawn when you hear that passage. Are you just going through the motions? He sent his only son so that you and I could be adopted into his family. So this morning, 
I pray that you would respond. I pray that you would see your own wickedness in light of the greatness of God. I pray that you would see the hurt that you cause in light of who he is. I pray that you would finally see yourself as bad and knock off this nonsense that, oh, I've got it together, in light of who he is. Because that's what's happening here in this book of Malachi, and we'll come back to it again and again over this series, of what it actually looks like for people to worship a holy God. Dear Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are. We pray, Lord, that this book, that this prophet would help us to see what you see, to see the foolishness of walking through the motions and see the beauty of a relationship with a holy God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son. We grab a hold of that this morning and praise you and worship you and adore you for it. We give you all the glory here today. We pray that as we do so, Lord, that the the greatness of God, as is prophesied here, it goes far beyond Israel, far beyond those nations' lines, Lord, that it would continue generation after generation after generation in this place, at this location. Why? Because of you. And we glorify you with all that we have here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.